I invite you to turn into your Bibles or on your phone or tablet to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the elders that Nate uh, very kindly and thoughtfully mentioned in his prayer there. And I'd like to begin this morning by inviting you to think about an area of your life that makes you feel weak. An area of your life that makes you feel somewhat powerless. An area of your life in which maybe you don't feel like you have complete control of your destiny. Maybe it's in the realm of your personal finances, and you've been trying to take strides forward there but despite your best efforts, it's not working out very well. Maybe it has to do with your career. And again, you're trying to move forward in a certain way, but uh, you're not quite sure how. Maybe there's a relationship that you feel stuck in that you're not quite sure how to get out of. Or maybe on the flip side, maybe there's a certain kind of relationship that you want to be in and you're not quite sure how to get there. Uh, Maybe you feel weak in the area of parenting. There are certain ways that you're trying to uh, shape uh, and in some ways control your children's behavior, and maybe it's not working out right now as you hope. You know, maybe it has to do with your physical health, right? The list could go on and on. When I consider this question of what makes me feel weak presently, I think about the businesses that I'm trying to build. Shameless plug, untapped counseling, untapped consulting, check them out, good stuff there. But I'm now counting on these businesses uh, to pretty much entirely provide for my family. And even though I'm really passionate about the work that I'm doing in those realms and excited about the potential there, I feel incredibly weak and fragile and frankly, anxious 
just about every single time I think about that part of my life, which is often. Perhaps some of you can relate when it comes to your area of weakness. And when it comes to these areas of weakness in our lives, you and I are probably feeling something akin to what these Christians in Philadelphia were experiencing when this letter was written to them. Jesus says as much at the early part of the letter here. Middle of verse 8, he says, I know you have but little power. He is acknowledging the weakness that they're currently experiencing. And indeed, this is a church that's weak. Uh, If you look into the context just a little bit, you'll learn that this is a group that has been marginalized by their Roman authorities. It's a group that has been rejected by their Jewish brothers and sisters, the synagogue of Satan that Jesus talks about here. Uh, This is a church that had grown small and materially poor and insignificant by pretty much any earthly standard. And what I want us to see here at the outset is that even though their physical circumstances were quite different than any we might face today, I can imagine that what they were feeling in this moment of weakness, the uncertainty, the anxiety, maybe even a little bit of guilt and shame creeping in, wondering maybe if we were doing things differently, the outcomes would be better. These feelings, I would argue, are not so different from what we experience today when we get to the end of ourselves in one area of our life or another. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say to this small, poor, seemingly powerless church, recognizing that there will almost certainly be implications for us as we confront areas of weakness in our own life. But before we do that, please pray with me once again. Father, I think if many of us are honest, we come into this sanctuary this morning feeling weak in one area or another, feeling somewhat powerless to produce the kind of outcomes we'd like to see in our life. And we confess to you, Lord, that 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 can be uncomfortable, Uh, that can be scary, Sometimes that can be frustrating. But help us, Lord. Help us to bring those areas of weakness before you. Uh, trusting that, that you see, you see what's going on there, uh, that you care, and that uh, you have words of truth and wisdom and encouragement uh, to speak into those areas our lives. So we come to you, Lord, open, ready, willing to receive those words you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what does Jesus have to say to this fledgling group of believers who are struggling 
to find their way. Well, he begins, if you'll note here, on something of an ominous note. Look at verse 8, his first words to this church. I know your works. I know your works. Considering the context here, that may have been a scary proposition for this group of believers. I mean, imagine yourself at work. And let's imagine that you have been struggling with your performance. Haven't been hitting your goals, haven't been meeting certain deadlines, starting to worry if that's being noticed by other people around the office. And then your supervisor calls you in. And he, he or she says to you, Noel, Nick, Katie, whoever it might be, I've, I've seen your work. I've been watching. I've been noticing. I've been talking to other people. Right, imagine some of the feelings of defensiveness and insecurity and fear that that might stir up in you in that moment. You'd probably be bracing for the worst. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case for these believers in Philadelphia. This makes what Jesus has to say next all the more surprising and encouraging. He says, I know your works. And behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. That right there is the essence of Jesus' message to this church. And then there's a lot that we could unpack there, but I want to make sure that we see the headlines. And I would contend that there are at least three. Headline number one, you'll note that there's not a single critique to be found in Jesus' words here. Not one. And this is significant because for those of you who've been around for the series or read these letters previously in Revelation, uh, Jesus isn't shy about criticism. Right? This isn't some encouragement circle where Jesus has to say one nice thing about every church and save the bad stuff for private. Jesus has laid the hammer down in many of his previous remarks, and he's about to do so again, worse than ever, in his next letter to the Laodiceans. So it's noteworthy here that he offers these Christians in Philadelphia nothing but praise. That's the first headline. Well, second, what does he praise them for? He praises them for their patient endurance. He says that they kept his word. They refused to deny his name. They held fast to the gospel that they had received and were entrusted to protect and uphold. In short and in sum, they didn't quit. They didn't quit. 
And that's about it. Jesus doesn't praise them because they patiently endured and then led a bunch of people to faith. He doesn't praise them because they patiently endured and then built the church back into some cultural force. He doesn't praise them because they patiently endured and then made Philadelphia great again. His praise is simply for the fact that they haven't given up. They haven't quit. They've been dealt a tough hand. They're feeling weak. They're facing difficult circumstances. But they're hanging in there. And thus, Jesus in this letter has nothing but praise for them. And I want to invite us to just marinate on that point for a moment because I think it's an, it's an important one for our congregation in particular. Uh, but we'll come back to that just a little bit later. So he offers them nothing but praise. Specifically, he's praising them for their patient endurance in the midst of difficult circumstances. Uh, number three, what is their reward? What's their incentive for continuing to endure these difficult circumstances that make them feel weak? Well, ironically, I think, their reward is access to power. But it's not the earthly power that most of us as human beings crave. Rather, it's a far superior power Jesus offers those who are willing to play the long game. Look at the specific form these promises take in our passage. Jesus says that he has opened to them a door to the kingdom that no one other than him has the power to shut. Jesus says that one day he's going to make their Jewish enemies, this synagogue of Satan, bow down before their feet. Jesus is promising them protection from a future hour of trial. Jesus says he's going to make them a pillar in the temple, meaning he's going to make them a permanent fixture in the new city of God. And finally, Jesus promises to write on them the very name of God himself. These are incredible promises of power and privilege, but they have to wait for them. They have to wait. It's a future power. And in the meantime, their call is to continue in patient endurance. Hold fast what you have, Jesus says in verse 11, so that no one may seize your crown. That's really the essence of what he's saying here. He, he's proud of them. He's encouraging them. They're faithfully and patiently enduring these difficult circumstances. And the call is just to, to keep on knowing that there's a tremendous reward awaiting them if they do. So that's what Jesus has to say to them. Now I'd invite us to consider the impact of these words on the Christians who originally received them. Put yourself in their shoes. Considering the context, how might they have felt upon first hearing these words that came from Jesus? Jesus. 
Of course, we're speculating a little bit in answering that question, but my guess is that there was some significant relief involved because the narrative being told in this letter is far different and far more positive than the narrative they had been living and hearing and likely telling themselves in their immediate context. Again, this is a church that's uh, been getting kicked around by just about everyone, and yet they've just been told they're doing a great job. That's a significant reframing that's taking place here. And that reframing is all the more significant when you consider the source of the reframing, the source of this new narrative. It's not as if these words are coming from some well-meaning friend or family member. These are the words of Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the King who holds the key of David and controls the doors of God's kingdom. The source here is significant. And it made me think about something I recently read uh, in a book by Tim Keller. The book is Making Sense of God. Uh, would commend it to you. And Dr. Keller says this, Only if we are approved and loved by someone whom we esteem can we achieve any self-esteem. I'll read it one more time. Only if we are approved and loved by someone we esteem can we personally achieve any self-esteem. What he's saying here is that it's not enough to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. True blessing comes when someone we respect gives us respect. When someone we admire expresses admiration for us. When someone of great worth tells us that we are worthy. Think of someone in your life whose approval you covet. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's your supervisor at work. Whoever it might be. And imagine that person telling you, without qualification, what a tremendous job you're doing. How would that feel? How has that felt in the past, for those of you who might have experienced that? Well, that's what's happening with these Christians in Philadelphia, only it's like a hundred X because it's Jesus that we're talking about here. These Christians in Philadelphia may be pitied by most, if not all, of their contemporaries, but they've earned the respect and the approval and the esteem of the one person whose opinion actually matters. Jesus Christ the God of the universe, who alone has the power to grant them access to God 
in his kingdom. So how did they feel upon receiving this letter? Again, I don't know for sure. But I hope that they felt encouraged and comforted and affirmed to keep pressing on because that was clearly Jesus' intention in having John pen these words to them. So we've considered what Jesus had to say. We've considered how that might have landed to these Christians who first received these words. Uh, Now let's fast forward to present day and right here, 2019 Christ Community. What are the implications of these words for us? How might we appropriate these encouraging words from Jesus to a church that was patiently and faithfully enduring hardship? I've got three pastoral exhortations for us that I think flow out of this passage and this context into our current situation here today. Uh, Number one, based on what we see here in this text, I think we can and should be thankful for the circumstances that make us feel weak. In other words, that thing, that area of your life I invited you to think about at the outset of the sermon, it's a gift. It's a gift to you. And I know for some of you that that's a scandalous thought. For some of you, that's probably the last thing you wanted to hear a preacher say this morning. In fact, there's probably some of you that actually came here this morning in part to figure out how to get control of that part of your life. Or maybe to get God to control that part of your life in a way that you'd feel better about. And of course, if we're talking about some kind of clear sin issue here, then yes, God absolutely and immediately wants to help you get that part of your life in order. But I'm not talking about sin in context here. I'm talking about an area of your life that is simply not working out in the way that you hoped or perhaps in the timing that you hoped for. And what I'm suggesting is that's a gift to you. Why do I say that? Well, when we feel weak, when we feel powerless, when we come to the end of our own wisdom and abilities. What are we more likely to do in that moment? We're more likely to lean on God's strength and God's power and God's wisdom. These seasons of weakness often produce a brand of spiritual intimacy and dependence that is nearly impossible to experience when we're just sort of cruising along in life. The Apostle Paul talks about this in numerous places, but most pointedly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about this thorn in his flesh that for years has just given him all kinds of fits, and he's asked God to take it away, and he hasn't. And these were Jesus' words to Paul in the midst of his weakness. 
He said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That was Jesus' message to Paul when he was feeling weak. Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I have to tell you, as much as I personally don't want to admit it, that's been true of my life. When I think about my own personal seasons of greatest spiritual intimacy and greatest spiritual dependence and and most accelerated times of spiritual growth. It's the hard times. It's the times where I felt utterly weak and helpless to do much of anything. I think about uh, my Teach for America days in Atlanta, which many of you have heard me talk about. I think about some of the leadership challenges we faced here at Christ Community uh, about five years ago. I think about uh, my current situation with these businesses and more mouths to feed than ever and just wondering how that's all going to work out. And, and it's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable right now in this season. I, I can get scared. I can feel anxious. Uh, but I've had enough experiences now with God to know that, that it's a gift. It is a gift. It really is to be weak in those seasons because it makes us lean on Jesus' power and strength and wisdom. Maturing in Christ means learning to embrace weakness. As one of my pastor friends often says, in Christianity, the way up isn't up. And this letter is yet another reminder of that kingdom principle. So number one, be thankful for the circumstances that make you feel weak. Number two, uh, be encouraged that you haven't quit. And I really want us as a congregation to hear this and receive this today. Uh, Because we are a church of high achievers. On any given Sunday, uh, many of us out there, if not all of us out there, feel like we're not quite getting the job done. We're not getting the job done as spouses, parents, students, professionals, friends, ministry leaders, on down the line. It's a church filled with people that whatever you've been called to do, there's this pervasive sense of, I'm not quite doing it right. I'm not quite doing it well enough. I'm not quite doing it fast enough. I know you. I've sat with many of you. I've, I've heard it. I feel it myself. And right, there's some truth to these feelings. You know, I'm not suggesting that we are a church comprised of uh, perfect Christians or perfect human beings or anything like it. But these believers in Philadelphia weren't perfect either. They had their own stuff. They had their own things they needed to grow in and work on, I'm sure. They were people. But look at what Jesus says to him here. Great job. Great job, period. He's proud of them for hanging in there. He's proud of them for staying in the fight. He's proud of them for patiently enduring some difficult circumstances. 
And you know what? I think he's proud of us as well. Just by the fact of you being here today tells us something about who you are. It tells us that you haven't given up. You haven't left the fight. If you're someone who continues to get up every day and, 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 and tries to follow and honor Jesus and the way you go about your life, no matter how imperfectly, then Jesus is proud of you. And he wants you to know that. So receive that encouragement this morning. Not from me, but from him. Finally, I believe this text encourages us and exhorts us to be excited for the reward that is to come. One of the major themes throughout this series and really throughout all of Revelation is that there is a tremendous blessing awaiting those who have ears to hear what Jesus is saying and a willingness to put those words into practice. And part of what this particular passage is meant to do is to whet our appetites for that future blessing. Consider again what is being promised here for those Christians who faithfully endure to the end. An open door into God's eternal kingdom that no other person has the power to shut. A righting of wrongs experienced on this earth, particularly with respect to our adversaries. Protection in the midst of future trials. Intimate and permanent access to God in his future city. And the very name of God written on our hearts forever. Here is the bottom line. Jesus played the long game for us. Patiently and faithfully enduring trials unlike any we've ever known. So that one day we could enjoy a reward unlike any we've ever known. He did that for us. And in response, he simply invites us to hang on to him. Collectively, as a faith family, looking forward to the reward that will come when we do. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that uh, these words uh, for your, from your son Jesus that we've just heard and considered together, I pray that they would do more than just enter our heads and rattle around up there, but I pray that they would penetrate deep down into our hearts, our affections, our convictions. Pray that as you continue to transform us, 
that you would help us learn to embrace weakness as an opportunity to grow closer to you and more dependent on you. I pray that we as a body would actually feel and experience the encouragement that I think you want to offer us here through this passage. This is a church of people who, for the most part, are faithfully enduring, who are holding on to you. We, we're not perfect. We get more wrong maybe than we get right, but we're in the game with you, Lord. And I feel like that means something to you. I hope that means something to you, and I pray that it would mean something to all of us as well. And finally, Lord, as we go forward together, each of us patiently enduring weaknesses and trials in our own different ways, I pray that we would have an eye on that future day when you will come back and make everything right and wipe away every tear and give us the crown, the reward, the treasure that you've promised us. And help us to patiently and faithfully press on as we collectively look forward to that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.